Welcome to another episode of our podcast, and we are delighted to have today in our show Alan Smith, who is the head of visual and data journalism at the Financial Times in London. A very warm welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Johannes. In this podcast, we ask our guests to bring in one number and then to talk a little bit about it, why, why they did so. So you choose 53.8 degree temperature swing. Tell us a little bit more why you choose this number and what this number is all about. So last year, one of the things that I did, which I, which, which was personally just interesting was that I'd, I'd seen lots of individual stories about temperature records. You know, there were a lot of records broken last year. And I, I kind of thought, well, this is really interesting as individual stories. But what does that look like in aggregate? What is there a pattern to the records that are being reported, both the record highs and the record lows? And so I went away and tried to, well, to find all of the temperature record data. There is someone called Maximiliano Herrera who uh, compiles uh, temperature records fastidiously. And so his source of information allowed me to kind of uh, really try and examine this data. And well, there were two things that struck me was that we found out that most of the most recent highs and lows that had been recorded, more of them were highs, right? So this kind of reinforced the notion that everyone has about kind of a warming of the planet. But what really struck me was that from looking at some visuals of these records was just how closely some countries are recording both record highs and record lows. And so this 53.8 degree number is the temperature swing from um, the United Arab Emirates recording a minus two figure in January of last year. And then um, hitting 51.8 degrees just six months later in the year. And for me, that's just another part of understanding what's happening with the planet. Do you track or do you see of how eventually uh, your stories um, will be used by people who work with data? So it's a really good question, this, because, I mean, I think this is the thing that's interesting for us just generally at the FT is that we we are not necessarily subscribers of the belief that every chart that you show a reader has to be understandable in five seconds, um, because sometimes that's a sign that you're not really conveying enough insight. What I really wanted to do, and it's what we do with this series, it's actually called Climate Graphic of the Week. The article starts with the chart, and we just want readers to read the chart. And then we write below the chart to explain more details about what's going on. But we really want people to, you know, grab a cup of coffee, read the chart and take away some sort of insights, hopefully that are memorable, things that make them feel like they've learned something. Um, and so, yeah, we do we do track if that's the case and how readers are finding the, the, the materials that we present them, um, you know, and we can track things like, you know, how often has it been shared? We get comments, which is a a big difference between working for an official statistics agency and something like the Financial Times is obviously we get direct reader comments underneath all of the articles that we write. So it's really interesting going through those comments and understanding if, if readers have appreciated it. So I think that's a really interesting point and, you know, speaks to your earlier comment about uh, data moving from being uh, supplementary to the to the piece to kind of data being this, this story. But, you know, I, I was wondering if you have any insights beyond sort of readership and stuff in terms of how you see that kind of data storytelling actually bring some change in behavior or insights. We're quite lucky in so many ways at the FT, partly because 
we know a lot about our readers, right? So we, we'd really like to make a, a kind of concerted effort to make sure that what we're presenting is relevant to our readership. And so in that sense, you're absolutely right. You could point to our coverage of climate change and say, you know, it's different to newspaper A, newspaper B or newspaper C, right? Because everybody's working to their particular audience. However, I do think that there's some things that have really changed that notion that you've just got a silo and that that's your audience and that's your universe. Um, things like social media, for example, have been like incredibly important to the Financial Times to increase its kind of overall influence and exposure um, in, in recent years. Um, one of the things that we really like to do with our graphics, to make sure that your graphics are, are basically self-sufficient, and I like to think of them as micro stories, right? Like, so the graphic itself can tell a story. And if you want to read more about that story, come and read the article, you know, the big article where we've got more reporting and more links and more things for you to follow. But the graphic itself remains valuable as, it, as its own sort of micro story. And I mean, I think the second thing, you know, you're not broadcasting information to a blank canvas. And so every audience has got its own biases and own preconceptions. And so one of the things I think that's particularly uh, kind of interesting and challenging working in visual and data journalism is to try and use the element of surprise to reveal some of those biases and to kind of change some of those perceptions. And when you change perceptions, that's what can make people change their actions. And, and probably the best example that I've got of that, that I've been involved in recently was another climate piece that I did last year where um, at around about the time of COP26, uh, we did a piece where we, we, we kind of did an interactive piece where we basically gave readers four incomplete charts relating to climate change um, and asked the reader to draw the rest of the chart. And so what would happen is the reader has to kind of literally kind of pick up the mouse or the trackpad and and kind of draw the rest of the line as they see the, the, the line continuing. When they click it and say, I'm finished with it, we actually reveal the real line. And so we kind of highlight the gap between the reader's perception and reality. And the thing that was really amazing with that was it would prove to be a hugely engaging way of getting people to kind of internalize the data. I love that idea of giving kind of agency to the to the uh, you know to the audience to getting them involved in storytelling themselves. I, I can see that as being especially valuable in this time of you know of fake news. And another way that people exercise agency these days is through uh, finding facts that that fit their own perceptions and 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 pre preconceived notions. I wonder how you at the FT confront this rise in fake news and alternative facts and alternative realities. But I wonder how that sort of whole fake news thing has affected your own work. Um, I mean, I think for 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 FT journalists and particularly for the journalists in my team, I mean, this is this is sort of affirmation of why this is such a hugely important track within journalism these days. And of course, when you're sort of talking about people finding facts that fit their preconceived narrative, that that doesn't necessarily apply just to the people that you disagree with, right? Like it can be people on, on you know, any kind of part of the spectrum, you know, something that you can fall into, which is kind of being self-selecting and, uh, and, and again, just letting biases and preconceptions kind of influence what it is that you're doing. So in a kind of broader media landscape, what we see at the Financial Times being really important here is that actually being seen to not be part of that fake news agenda, to be working in a in a sort of space that's trying to reveal 
insight that's useful and actionable rather than, you know, just massaging people's preconceived views. For us, that's where the future of journalism is in terms of us as a business model. Um, the FT's motto for over a century has been sort of without fear and without favour. Our, our kind of data journalism operation really fundamentally kind of speaks to that point. We really want to have that whole journalistic process work in a very similar way to an academic study, right, which is where you start a journalism, uh, you know, you start a story, not with uh, a preconceived idea of what it is that you're writing about, but maybe you start with a question, right, and then what you end up with is something that's much more akin to sort of hypothesis testing and um, using data to answer questions. Speaking about rigor, speaking about engaging with the society at large, one institution that you also has, uh, have been working for, Alan, the UK's uh, National Statistical Office, but let's speak largely about statistical offices in this world. Their role seems to be also changing. And you just mentioned a couple of uh, characteristics that national statistical offices all over the world also abide to, to provide uh, unbiased scientific information and then have others debate it and, and make an informed decision. Now, at times where we have all these issues going on that Joshua just mentioned with um, fake news, uh, a lot of polarized uh, debates in society, you would imagine that statistical offices would be at the forefront and the demand would be asked. But in reality, what we can see uh, also in terms of just um, giving recognition to statistical offices, giving budgets to statistical offices, it seems to go down, not upwards. Is there any advice you could give to um, statistical offices that you take away to be relevant and to attract also the attention of those who provide the resources for them in order to ensure that they can continue their work in this in this very difficult moment? You're right. I spent a lot of time, nearly two decades at uh, the, the ONS. Um, so I have a lot of kind of thoughts on this. And, and one of them is I completely understand that historically statistical offices have been fairly reluctant to get into to get involved in what they might see as the sort of the, the political interpretation of their outputs you know maybe the job of the nso is just to a factory for numbers right like and we'll just leave the, the numbers by the factory gate and then other people like the journalists can pick up the numbers and do the reporting I think that really misses one of the most valuable things about NSOs, right? Like, which is that when you are compiling statistics and publishing them, you have to know that they're fit for purpose. And to know that they're fit for purpose, you need to know the purpose, right? Like, so you need to have a very deep understanding, not only of what you're compiling, but what you're compiling it for. And in my experience, um, that it usually contains massive insight You know, the, the statisticians understand the data much more than more or less anybody else because, you know, they've produced it. And so for my money, all of the insight that has been collected by the NSO as part of that production process should be shared. You know, saying nothing about the data that you publish is not necessarily neutral. But for me, there's a fine line between being independent and being irrelevant. I, I can completely concur with you that sort of not engaging is not an option. And luckily, I think it's um, becoming part of the discourse of 
uh, official statistical debates. Um, the statistical community has now a UN World Data Forum where increasingly also this topic of impact and use and what is it all about? For whom are those numbers? Do they drive change? Become a very important part of the conversation. Yet I would also think align with yourself that there is more scope to be done to, to stay relevant. And an indicator of staying relevant is, is, is obviously also to get funding for, for the jobs you are doing. So I think the, the advice you shared here is extremely valuable uh, for our audience to think through of how a modern statistical office can look like uh, going forward and at times also where the difference between data and statistics is blurring. Many of the things that formerly was done in the statistical offices are now done through data scientists and, and other parts of government by private providers who provide all a, a serious competition. So in that sense, a change is, is being called for. And I think with your work, uh, it, it gives us a, a lot of inspiration. So thank you so much for this, Alan. Let me let me conclude by a last more, a little bit personal question, Alan. Have you read recently any book or have seen any film that inspired you uh, with respect to the topic of climate change uh, and or climate change data? One of the things I realized was that Recently, I'd seen two films which I'd, I'd not sat down to watch as climate change films, but made me end up reflecting um, quite a bit about contextualizing what everybody is talking about right now. And so um, so the two films I'm talking about were, were Interstellar and more recently The Midnight Sky, which were two films that are basically set sort of in the future, but not very far in the future. In, in some ways. But what's common to both of those films is that they're set on a, a future Earth uh, where the balance has already been tipped. So the thing that's interesting for me about those two films was that they, they weren't set, you know, thousands of years in the future or something, you know, enough in the future for you to realise that there, there's a path of deterioration that will happen if we uh, don't take appropriate action now. And I think one of the things that's quite difficult to do with data alone sometimes is to create sort of emotional impact. And these films can create, films like that can create that emotional impact when they project you forward. What will the world look like, you know, if we go down a certain path? Thanks so much, Alan. I mean, it's been great talking to you. And I think you've given us some real insights into how the FT is working in these uh, with these challenging topics and also uh, on the important role that uh, your work will, will continue to play, and I think increasingly important role uh, as we go further. 